If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, uh, if you're brand new with us, my name is Dave Berenger. I'm the pastor of the church, and I'd love to be able to meet you and get to know you a little bit, um, answer any questions that you might have. Um, but I'm so stoked that you are here. Uh, let me just reiterate what the, our announcements just said. Uh, Wednesday nights this whole month, we are inviting missionaries in because the whole theme of the month is Missio Dei, which is a Latin term for the mission of God. That is the, it's the theme for the series. It's the heart of the series. And so this past Wednesday, uh, I think we filled all the tables in the cafe. We, if, if it gets any bigger, we got to set up more tables, which is a great problem. And we had missionary Randy Marin from Kalamazoo. He works with uh, Syrian refugees over in Detroit. And uh, people are walking away and said, Pastor, this was really good. Uh, a few people surprised. This was good. And I'm like, well, yes, it's really good. And uh, so we've got another missionary, uh, Luke Moore, one of our missionaries that we support is going to be here. Um, and so stoked that we were actually able to have him because he didn't know if he was still going to be in the States uh, for this coming uh, Wednesday. And he is. And so please, coming out 7 to 8, we have an absolutely amazing time. Inconceivable. Somebody said it, I heard it. That word became famous because of that great gospel movie, The Princess Bride. Now let's admit, when I say gospel movie, y'all know it's on the most part I'm being sarcastic. This one though is, because every once in a while, Pastor Dave said Band of Brothers is a Christian series. No, he was being sarcastic. Um, Band of, like when it comes to Princess Bride, Family movie, fantastic movie. There's a young Fred Savage in there. Uh, it was a, one of my nicknames in high school or in middle school was Fred Savage for some weird reason. Um, some of you are like, I see it now. Just my hairstyle and the, the, he was richer than me, so it didn't matter. Um, but when I think about the, the, the words inconceivable, you remember the line that Indigo says to Vasily, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Have you ever known people like that, that use words, and you're just like, I don't know if you're using that correctly. I used to have to correct our senior pastor at our last church because he would say words on Sunday, and on Monday I'm like, Pastor, you told everybody in the church they have junk in the trunk. And he's, he's like, yes, they do. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you know, like skeletons in the closet. I'm like, that's not what it means. <laughs> well, what does it mean? I said, you said everybody has a big butt. And he goes, oh, So there's a, a little skill or tactic that I use when I talk with individuals when people use terms or phrases, and maybe it's happened with me and you when we've talked. I've asked you this, can you describe to me what that means? You use that word, you've used that phrase, can you tell me what that means to you? And like a very hot button thing that I get as a pastor is, I've been hurt by church. Hurt. Can you tell me what that means? And sometimes I hear stories about pastors doing things that are absolutely inappropriate, church members doing things that should never be done by a believer. Sometimes it's just the fact that a church did not meet an expectation whatsoever, and it wasn't that an individual hurt, it's just the expectation was let down. So I'd like to understand what somebody is actually talking about when we're using certain words. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit today with the word evangelical. I heard a, oh. The word evangelical or even evangelicism 
I'll just say this, there's no authority that you could call upon the phone or a central office, there's no evangelical headquarters that just exists where you can get the official definition. Why? Because the definition spans into different denominations, churches and organizations. And so there is no single membership statement to delineate what this exactly means. And as a result, individual observers are left to decide how to define what is evangelical and what makes something evangelical to a pollster, it's a sociological term. To a pastor, it's a denomination or a doctrinal term. And so the term evangelical comes from the Greek word evangelion, which means gospel of good news. And so all, in all technicality, evangelical means, it refers to a person, church, or organization that is committed to the gospel message that Jesus is the Savior of humanity. That's what the word means. But I promise you that listening to me right now were some millennials and some Generation Z that would not understand that definition. Because 2016, after that election, evangelical that once proclaimed mission became a word about affiliation and political leverage. And nobody said really anything about the change. Why? Because it seems for the first time in history, evangelicals had a political foothold and influence. Instead of serving the mission of God, it seemed that evangelicism served the idol of political power. And so since evangelical, so we're talking almost 10 years, has increasingly been associated with attitudes and actions that are contrary to biblical faith. Whether or not these are fair, they're still being used by the culture at large to criticize Christianity. But listen, we all have to admit something, that it is true that some within the evangelical community and, and denominations demonstrate actions and attitudes that don't reflect Christ very well. Without lifting up any hands, I'm assuming that we've all encountered people who are evangelical, that their attitudes and actions really didn't display Christ at all. And so many generations and people are seeking to distance themselves from the term. And what they have done is they have created a new, a new term that many of you will recognize this, and the term is exvangelical. For many exvangelicals, the move away from traditional evangelicism has been a movement away from traditional morality, orthodox doctrine, organized church, and or conservative social and political stances. And it is my heart that we would draw a line in the sand in this series, that we would be a people that would move back to the heart of historical evangelicism, where we make evangelicism about the gospel and not about our political stances. Our our, listen, our evangelical stances don't flow out of our politics. Our politics flow out of our evangelical stances. And we have to return the gospel back to where it should be. And that's what brings us to Isaiah chapter 6. Would you stand with me for the ring of the word? We are going to work this year on restoring the word evangelical or evangelicism. We are going to move it away from the, polit the political repercussions that it has become, and we're going to make it about kingdom re repercussions. That is the heart of, my, of this pastor. Isaiah 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, two covered the face, with two he covered feet, and with two they flew. And one called to the other saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And he said, Here am I, send me. Let's pray. Jesus, we just take a hold of you today. Not a hold of ourselves, not our stances, not our ideals. We get a hold of you. Because it's in you we live and move and have our being. And I ask that today that you would restore your identity to your church. Your reputation to your church. The church does not belong to us, it belongs to you and your promises that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So Lord, upon your people restore your name, shape our lives that we would reflect the King of glory, the one who is seated upon the, on the throne and whose robe and presence fills the temple and the earth. We speak that all in the authority of Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Give someone a high five before you're seated. It has been my heart to restore that word evangelical for years. And I've talked with a few people about that. And the most common thing that I get, no joke, word for word from so many people is, good luck, pastor. Good luck. Because we have to recognize that when it comes to God's mark on our life, that we will invite Christ into our life. But many times we want Christ to be our Savior, but we don't want Christ to be our Lord. We want Christ to save us from our sin, but we don't want to let him be Lord of our life and let him shape our life. And there is a quote that's been attributed to Gandhi that I've known about for years, but it simply says this. Gandhi says, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ's. You see, we often have a message within us a missio day, the mission of God upon us, but our posture toward the world is quite often God's posture. We can have a posture toward people that, quite frankly, isn't God's posture toward people. I mean, think about people that pass you by maybe every day or maybe, as, maybe if you're downtown or walking through the mall or walking through a store. What is our posture toward individuals? I mean, think about this. Think about your posture toward somebody who walks by you with a Make America Great Again hat. Think about your posture when a gay couple comes walking by you on the street. Think about your posture toward a Muslim wo woman wearing a hijab. What about your posture toward the, toward the police and authorities? What about your posture toward unbelieving authorities, bosses, and co-workers in your life? And what my concern is, is that we, the church, can have the message of Christ, but our posture toward the lost is many, not, is many times we have a heart for the lost, but our posture toward them is not conducive with the calling that is on our lives. And we have to make sure that the posture, the heart that we have toward people matches the mission that God has placed upon us. And this is what brings us to Isaiah chapter 6. Last week we talked about the call of Jeremiah. The call that God calls him and immediately gives excuses. Well, I'm young and, and, and I don't know what to say. And God says, I'm going to give you the words to say. I'm going to call you into a broken world. And here, Isaiah has a particular setting that's a little bit different from Jeremiah's setting. Because it says in verse 1, it was in the year that King Uzziah died. If you need to know who King Uzziah is, you can actually turn over later, please, 
later before you watch the 49ers beat the Chiefs, when, before that all happens. Nobody riffed in here. I've had people already say, I'm done with Taylor Swift. Let's just let the 49ers win. All right, I'm just checking the crowd's temperature here. But in 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 26, we get the story of Uzziah. Uzziah comes into power as a king in Israel at the age of 16 years old. And he is one of the longest tenured kings in all of Chronicles and Kings. And he is a king who lasts for 52 years. 52 years of a reign. And to give his, king, his kingship in a nutshell, he was somebody that at a young age, he pursued God. He followed after God. He wanted everything that God wanted. And he began to shape Israel. He began to secure their borders. He began to fortify their armies. He took a stand against idol worship. He began to kind of set up the standard of what God wanted in the kingdom. But after a while, all of a sudden his authority and his power went to his head. And it got to the place where he felt that I should be able to go and do whatever I want to do. God is on my side. I can do anything that my heart tells me that I want to do. And friend, First Chronicles tells us that he walks into the temple and begins to light the altar of incense, which is a no-no. Why? Because God said only the priests are to do this. And in fact, it says that 80 priests stood against the king. I mean, it's like the, the president of the United States walking in and like 80 pastors taking a stand. No, 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 you can't, let us do that. You can't do that. That's, you got to know your role. And the king's like, I can exercise whatever authority I want, wherever I want, whenever I want. And it says that he is stricken with leprosy. And that's where he spends the rest of his life in isolation because of his leprosy. And that's what claims his life. He has to run his kingdom in isolation because he has been stricken with this leprosy. And that is what's going to take his life. That's what ends it. And then we get to Isaiah chapter 6 because what has happened is Uzziah has passed away. 52 years of the authority. 52 years of the kingship. And now the, the country is finding themselves in a place where they're a little bit lost. Like the politics of that day. The rule of that day. Everything, that the, everything they have known for 52 years is gone. And now there is this void that has been left. And Isaiah goes to the house of God to get direction from God because he feels lost. And when he goes to get direction from God, he sees a vision of God. And there's two words I want you to notice. And I, I hope you bring your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a free one for you at the Connection Center. We'd love to give you one. Because when I have my Bible, I like circling words. I like writing down things. Don't cross things out. That's weird. But circle words, highlight words. And there's two words I want to really point out to you because I think they're extremely important. One is in verse 1 when it says that I saw the Lord high and lifted up and His train filled the temple. That's, a, that's an important word. And then you get to verse 3. And the angels cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is, say it with me, filled with His glory. Now, we really don't have a problem with the first one. And we talked a little bit about this last week. We don't have a problem with the first one because, okay, God is high and lifted up in His presence. His train is just a symbol of His presence. It fills the temple. None of us have a problem thinking that the presence of God fills the room at a church. We have no problem like, okay, of course, He fills a religious building. His presence is there, but all of a sudden we begin to see that God doesn't just fill a church up, but His presence goes around this earth. That his presence is everywhere, no matter where you go. In the same way he fills the temple, he fills the earth. And so there is an invitation that you, are, you and I have in the Missio Dei, in the mission of God, is that God's presence fills the earth, and it's up to you and I to make sure that we make the invisible God visible to the world around us. 
It is our invitation to make the glory of God visible with our mouths, with our lives, with our actions, with our generosity, with our love, with our serving, with our, with our grace, with our justice. We're called to make it visible. The glory of God fills the earth. Not just Kalamazoo First Assembly of God, not just 5550 Oakland Drive, and I pray that we sense the presence of God. I don't know about you, I have felt the presence of God this morning. Singing that new song, singing about the names of God, I mean, it's like I just, I just sense the presence of God here. But when you leave this place, I want you to know the presence of God doesn't stay here because He's already out there and He's everywhere around us. His presence is everywhere. And so explaining this, this phenomenon of the glory of God already being in the world, I want to bring us into a, a metaphor that maybe you might not be comfortable with. Is it okay if I talk about something that might not make you always comfortable? Some of you will have zero issue with this. For those of you like me, you grew up in a very, very, very ultra-conservative home. How conservative that we squeaked when we walked. Tolkien. Anybody ever read Lord of the Rings? Hobbit. All right, awesome. What about C.S. Lewis? Language in the wardrobe. The rest of you, we got to get you cultured. <laughs> You gotta read C.S. Lewis. You gotta read Tolkien. It's just, it's amazing stuff. It's better than the movies, by the way. And Lewis and Tolkien and the like, they used a term to explain supernatural power. And I'm gonna use a word that will make a few of you uncomfortable. Some of you won't care or we won't even understand why it makes people uncomfortable. And here's the word magic. There's the crickets I needed right there. Lewis used the term magic. Tolkien, we use the word magic to describe a power that is around and at work. For example, if you read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I don't think my dad knew that I read. My mom bought it for me. But if he would have saw the word witch on the cover, it would have been tossed away. That's, that's the home that we lived in. And so within there, you have Aslan, who Aslan in the book is a type of Christ. And Aslan says these words. Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she does not know. And now I recognize the term magic is a very sensitive word for many people to hear. But I'm here to say that in literature, there's actually two different ways to talk about the word. And this will make sense in a second. The two words I'm going to invite you to understand are the words invocational and incantational. When it comes to being invocational, the word it means to invoke or to call in. In other words, it's trying to bring in what isn't present, but something from the outside. And that sort of magic is the sort that's referred to in the scripture as sorcery. And we see it in scripture that God is against this sort of invocation where you are calling in deities and demonic spirits into the world. This is why I've steered people for years away from things like Ouija boards, fortune telling, tarot cards, um, seances. Please don't do seances. That's not a very good holy thing. Um, there's this demonic things where you are inviting demonic spirits, evil spirits in. I have personally known individuals who are training to be witches and warlocks, people who dabbled in black magic. This is the stuff that we're talking about. But in literature from Lewis and Tolkien and the like, these utilize a different type of word. So stick with me. And the word is incantational. And that type means to sing along with or to harmonize. 
And so in literature, when they're talking about magic and a power that is at work, this, it's this incantational approach. It means that there is something around us that you need to harmonize with. So the question is, the song of the power that's being sung, will you sing along with it? And what Lewis and Tolkien and others are supposing is that the world is filled with power and people in the world need to learn how to sing with it. It's not from another dimension. It's not being brought up from underneath. It is what is already present. What is Tolkien? What is Lewis trying to describe. It's the presence of God that Isaiah was talking about. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. And the question is, is will your life and my life sing in harmony with what God is up to and what God is already doing? And so many times we're trying to sing our own song and God is trying to invite us in. You're trying to drum something from yourself. Listen, don't drink, bring anything up from yourself. Paul says it best. No good thing lies within here. What we don't need is more of us. We need more of Jesus within us. So it's more of him and less of us. And everywhere we go, we have the presence of God to tap into and to lean into. David said to himself, where can I go from your presence? And that challenges us on mission that wherever we go, all we got to do is walk and step with the power of God. Walk in such a way that harmonizes with what he wants to do wherever he has us planted. So Isaiah 3, God's glory is not from another realm. It's here. Our lives are to harmonize. And so he encounters the holiness of God. And Isaiah says two things that I want to sit on for the next 10 minutes. Just two things I want you to understand. Because it helps us to develop a heart and a posture for the lost people around this world. So if you're a note taker, and I hope you are, write this down. Number one, write down the words, woe is me. Woe is me. Isaiah stands in the presence of a holy God, and he sees how sinful he is. And he says the words, woe is me. See, I'm a firm believer that when you have a revelation of God, when you encounter God, you have to also encounter yourself. Because when you encounter the presence of a holy God, you see how sinful you are. When you encounter the presence of a majestic God, you realize how common you are. When you realize the presence and the power of God, you realize how weak and feeble you really are. But I'm here to say that if you have a revelation of God that does not give you a revelation of yourself, you should question whether or not you've had a revelation of God. Because when, when I get to the presence of God, listen, I do my best to live holy. I do my best to follow him. But I'm here to say, your pastor is not a perfect individual. Is there anybody here you have a problem believing that? No hands. Thank God. But when I get into the presence of God, immediately my heart goes toward repentance. Searching my heart. Checking my heart. Looking at my life. And all of a sudden, when I go into the presence of God, not only do I feel repentance, but I go into humility because I realize how greater he is and how weak I am and how much I need him. And every single day, I have this constant revelation because I realize I can't live life without God. This is the approach that we see throughout Scripture. Luke chapter 5. Oh, it's such a great, it's actually a great scene from The Chosen. Luke chapter 5. A boat comes in where these fishermen, these pros have been fishing and they've caught basically nothing. And Jesus is standing there. The non-fisherman says, just go out a little ways and toss your, your nets out. It wasn't even the time to fish. And then the pros were like, listen, this is what we did. We know what you're saying, but we know our stuff. And Jesus says, yo, just do it. In different terms. So they throw their nets over and they catch so many fish it almost sinks their ships. And one of the fishermen's name is Simon. We know him as Peter. He gets a glimpse of who Jesus is. And all he knows to do 
is I'm in the presence of the Messiah. And he drops to his knees. And he says, just run from me. I'm a sinner. Just go. Just get out of here. What happened? He caught a glimpse of God. A revelation of who God is and, and who he really is. You go to Revelation chapter 1. John the Apostle. He gets a glimpse of Jesus. And the scripture says, he falls on his face like he's dead. There's just something about getting a revelation of both the divine grace and the terrifying holiness of God. Now let me tell you this. When it comes to getting a view of God, there are two very dangerous ways to solely see God. Two very dangerous ways to solely see God. First of all, if you solely see God as a cosmic teddy bear, you're missing out on God. What do we mean by that? It's the type of God that says, always says to you, oh, you're fine. We good. You don't have to change. My grace is enough for you. And is God's grace enough for us? Yes. But if we never, if we only have a God that is our cosmic teddy bear that we just snuggle with, that never challenges our living, that never challenges our thinking, that never calls us into question, that never points out our sin. Listen, the same Jesus that kids ran to was the same one that looked at individuals and said, go and sin no more. Or stop doing that or worse things are going to happen. Jesus had no problem looking at people saying, the way you're acting, you are a whitewashed tomb. And you know what, you know what that meant? Is in those days they would put white over the top of tombstones because the rule was if you touch something dead, you were considered dead for seven days until you get cleansed. And so Jesus told Pharisees, I don't want people to touch you because they'll catch what you got. They're going to be just as sinful as you are. We cannot serve the cosmic teddy bear God that just simply says, all I need is God's grace. I can keep living the way that I want. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say that's called cheap grace. But yet the other side, there's some people that only serve the vengeful God. And they're all my friends on Facebook. I post about grace or loving, I can count down the minutes before the, the angry elf gets on there. Or elves, man, they get on there. Well, you're an angry elf. And they get on there. And there's a, tell people about their sin. Pastor, I pray that, that this gospel is not the gospel preached in your, in your church. And they just start annihilating me because, because their Jesus is always as angry as they are. Jesus only gets angry at the stuff they get angry at. And I'm just telling you, they're not following Jesus. They're following their idol. We don't need a cosmic teddy bear. We don't need a vengeful judge. What we need is to recognize that God is a comforting father and he's also a consuming fire. He is both. And what we have to do as believers is we have to hold on to the tension of both. He is our comforting father, but he's also our consuming fire that calls us to live holy, that calls us to live righteous, and we have the grace to be received. But at the same time, when we go through grace, we also go through conviction. And here is Isaiah. He is in the presence of God. And he recognizes that, man, yes, something's wrong in the world. But in the presence of God, there's something wrong with me. The ministry of this missional prophet didn't begin with woe to everybody else. The ministry of a ministry prophet is to look and say the words, woe is me. How many of us, in effort to deflect away the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we love to convict other people? An effort to get the finger that the Holy Spirit sometimes puts on our life saying, I want to correct this with you. What we try to find is other people who have it worse than us. Because if I can find somebody more in more sin than me, then I don't have to correct myself so much. But Lord, return your church to woe to me instead of woe to others.
there in London, England, there was an article in 1910 called, What's Wrong with the World Today? And so there was a theologian, there was a preacher, his name was G.K. Chesterton. In fact, he was the one that led C.S. Lewis to the Lord, who led Tolkien to the Lord. There's a legacy. He writes in response to the article, what's wrong with the world today? This is what he simply writes. Dear sir, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Most of the time, somebody, I, don't do this. You'll get a lot of drama. Post on Facebook, what's wrong with the world today? That's what's going to happen. Because everyone's going to tell you who to blame and what to blame them for. And not a single person is going to rise up and simply say, woe is me. And Isaiah teaches us to see ourselves before we see everybody else's faults. Pastor, immigration is the problem. The poor are the problem. The rich are the problem. Muslims are the problem. Politicians are the problem. News are the problem. The occult is the problem. The radical right is the problem. The liberal left is the problem. We know who to blame. But I'm here to say this, that unless the church leads the way in confessing sin, unless the church leads the way in naming our missteps and our mistakes, unless we get familiar with saying the words, woe is me, how can we possibly imagine having a witness out in the world? The world doesn't need a perfected church. They need a repentant church. And we have to recognize that the problems that our friends have, the struggles they have, they're the same struggles we have. But the difference is we address them with Jesus. And Isaiah feels absolutely ruined by the presence of God. And what I love about the Lord is he doesn't end the story there. He doesn't end the story there. You see, when you read this, we always go into Isaiah, but we also forget about Uzziah. King Uzziah felt entitled to be in the temple. He says, I belong here, this is my space. God tells him, this ain't your space. Isaiah says, I don't belong here, this is not my space. And God says, you belong here, that's your home. Do you see the difference? The Bible says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Uzziah comes in, I'm entitled, I'm king. God says, no, 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 I'm king. Isaiah says, I don't deserve to be here. And God says, make yourself at home. The angel approaches Isaiah. Could you imagine sitting in God's presence and an angel grabs a fiery coal and approaches you? I mean, every, every one of you thinking, I'm, just, I'm deceased right here. I'm done. Tell my wife I love her. And that touches the coal to his lips and cleanse them where we get grace and mercy and compassion. And in this moment of grace and compassion, verse 8, God gives an invitation for him to step into mission. If you remember last week, when the Missio Dei, the mission of God came to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, he just yeeted out of there. He's like, this is not, I'm not doing this. No, 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 I'm gone. No, 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 no. It can't be me. But in the middle of this repentant moment, this humble moment, you get the humility and the heart that God's trying to develop in the heart of Isaiah, which is try I'm trying to do within our hearts this morning. Spirit of God wants us to get into a missional place. But to be in the missional place, you have to have a missional, a missional heart. And to have a missional heart, you have to have a heart that is humble before God, recognizing it's only by his grace and mercy that we are all here. And out of this, Isaiah is called. And God said, who will we send in Isaiah he doesn't even know what the mission entails. He doesn't know where God's going to send him or what God's going to do or who God's going to send him to. He becomes that, that kid in your class. 
When the teacher asks a question, and while you're sitting there praying, like me, oh, sweet baby Jesus, don't let the teacher call on me. I don't know the answer. And you've got that annoying friend, oh, 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 and the teacher does not want to call on that one. They're going to call on you. Mr. Berenger, oh, crap. <laughs> this is Isaiah. Who are we going to send? God, you've just set me free. I'm so full of grace. God, just send me. How can I repay you with my life? How can I repay you with what you just shown me? How can I repay you for the repentance that I've been allowed to have? How can I repay you for cleansing my life and setting me free? God, send me. And that's the second statement. Here am I. You see, holiness, I love this quote by Brian Blunt. Holiness is obedience turned inward. Mission is obedience turned outward. And so what Isaiah does is Isaiah decides at this moment that God, if you need to send anybody, I know what you've done in me. How in the world can I withhold what I've received? Freely I have received. I've got to give it out. I've got mercy. I'm given mercy. I've given love. I'm given love. I want to return the name of God to this world. I know what happened with Uzziah, but I can't be Uzziah. I need to be Isaiah. I want to go after and be obedient. And he has what I call the heart of a missionary and a heart of, instead of a heart of a tourist. Do you want to know the difference? My keyboardist can join me. He has the heart of a missionary instead of a heart of a tourist. Why? A tourist wants to sightsee at his or own terms. Some of us navigate the presence of God like tourists. And we sight and we see and just go after what favors us. We church shop in that manner, don't we? We look around for the latest trends. The hot pastors, or the hot speaking pastors, not the hot pastors. <laughs> By the way, thank you for being here. <laughs> get it back, David, get it back. We search for whatever trend whatever gives us the feels and we run after it and we call it a move of God and listen I'm not you know anti like Christian concerts and worship concerts things like that I want to see a move of God but I think so many times we are so busy chasing moves that we haven't stopped and said maybe God wants to prepare a new move here a new move now we have hearts of tourists who sightsee at our own terms. As long as it isn't a fringe of what we want and what we desire, we will do it. But a person on mission is led by God into the unknown and he's invited to trust. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. He doesn't know what God's going to really do yet. He doesn't know where God's going to lead him yet. All he knows is the presence of God is in that place and he recognizes the presence of God has filled the earth. And he just simply says, God, it doesn't matter what you ask me to do. I will already say yes. That's the difference between a missionary and somebody who is a tourist. And I want to be the type of church that looks for every reason, like Isaiah, to simply say, God, whatever you want to do in my life, send me. Because God, I know who's in control. I know who has authority. I know who has the power. It's you. When we say the Lord's Prayer, there's a portion of the Lord's Prayer that, that was added later 
where it says, for thine is the kingdom, for thine is the power, and for thine is the glory. And it's not that it's untrue, but it's something that I think some of us forget about, that whenever God asks us to do something, we forget that he's not asking for us to have the power and the glory. He has the power and the glory, and he's ready to give it to us. And if we will humble ourselves in his presence, he will give us more than we've ever needed or imagined. It's time to put evangelism back into the word evangelical. It's time to restore the gospel back to the church. The word gospel means this. Somebody say it out loud. Good news. It's the hope that we were dead in our sin and God made us alive through Christ Jesus. It's good news. And yet we walk around like we're ready to apologize with the world for having the message of hope. But will us, will we humble ourselves? And will we start off and prepare our hearts? That's my challenge. This last week the challenge was this, to ask two questions to God every single morning. Is God, what are you up to today? And, and number two, can I help? Here's my simple thing that I want you to do this week. Was every single morning, would you just have a few moments alone with God? And would you say the words, woe is me? The psalmist might say it this way, Lord, search my life and search my heart. Check the words that come out of my mouth. Check the attitudes that I have at my workplace. God, I, I promise you, you let you pray this this week, you ask God this, this week, and when you're walking along the road and you see somebody that normally you would have sneered at, God's going to check your heart. And before making a judgment call, I'm believing that God is going to replace judgment with compassion. God, break your heart for what breaks yours. And instead of standing in judgment, you're going to say these words, woe is me. And you're going to follow it up with, here am I, send me. Pastor, I don't know where God's going to send me. I don't either. God may send you to the guy in the cubicle next to you who's just gone through a messy divorce and nobody's even asked him how he's doing. But he's, here am I, send me. What about that lonely child at the school that just has been on their own? And I'm not gonna ask you to know their business, but have you ever just checked in and say, hey, how are you doing? The neighbor that God has been laying upon your heart, uh, the, the relative that nobody ever checks in on, that nobody ever shows any love towards, have you ever just simply looked at yourself and said, woe is me. And then secondly, Lord, send me. Lord, that you would check our hearts, that we would not just defer the calling to somebody else, but Lord, send us. Could you bow your heads with me? I'm done yakking. The presence of the Spirit of God is in this place right now. I can sense it and I can feel it. It's so tangible right now. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not in a relationship with Jesus. I'm not going to introduce you to a cosmic teddy bear nor to a vengeful deity. But there is a consuming fire that is also a compassionate father that calls us out of our sin into new life. Is it challenging? You bet. Sometimes is it uncomfortable? You bet. But he calls us into a love, into a grace that not just fills us in the moment, but empowers us to live. 
And if you're here today and you're not in a relationship with Jesus, maybe you have walked away from your relationship with God. Maybe you've never had a relationship with Christ. I want you to know that you're in very good company because you're surrounded by individuals who have all made this decision. And maybe you're ready to make a decision to follow Jesus. I'm not asking you to join this church. I'm just going to tell you, I'm biased. I would love for you to join this church. But that's just not my goal. It's not my worry. My worry is that you wouldn't leave this place without making a commitment to Christ. Because we're not promised another breath. We're not promised another day. We're not promised another moment. But we are promised that anybody who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And if you're here today and you need to step into a relationship with Jesus, if that's you, right now, would you lift up your hand? Pastor Dave, I don't want to leave here without making a commitment to Christ. If that's you, just put that up. Thank you. Thank you, young lady. You put that hand down. Anybody else? You don't want to leave here without making a decision to follow Jesus. Just a few seconds here. Three. You're worth the whole message right there. And maybe you're watching online or maybe you were just nervous about putting up a hand. But I'm going to ask for those that are ready to make the commitment to Christ, would you just invite Jesus in? Let's do it like Isaiah. Just say the words, woe is me. Woe is me, Lord. Lord, I'm not clean. I've got sin. I've got stuff I deal with. But Lord, I recognize your grace and your mercy that's there. Calling me out into a brand new life with you. And so Lord, today I hand my life, the control, the trust of my life into your hands. Asking that you would transform me into a new creature. I know right now, God, that you're changing me. I know in this moment I'm being changed. Lord, what you did in Isaiah, do in me. Transform me and send me into this world a different creature. The old is past and the new has come. And so, Lord, what I do is I pray over this individual here, God, and even those, God, that maybe were a little nervous about raising hands. I just ask, God, that you would just... Let your love surround them. Let your Holy Spirit just fill them to such capacity that they would overflow with you. They would sense your, no, your nearness and your closeness. That they would just know you in such a tangible way, God, recognizing that they walked in as one creature. They get to leave today being made brand new because that's what your word tells us, that in Christ all things are made brand new. So I thank you for your word and for your work of what you've done today. Be with them. Help us, God, to come around them, to help grow them, to see your life matured, that they would have a missional life where people can taste and see that Jesus is good. To you be the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, can we give God the glory for one person giving their heart to Jesus this morning?